Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. One of those trees, right? You may see a dog or a cat or something pass by. You may see a bird come flying through. You may even see a butterfly or whatever. And those aren't plants. Those are animals. They eat, they drink, they breathe. Yes? Do they think? Yes, they do. They have a body and they have a soul. The Old Testament refers to them having a nefesh as well, which is the word for soul, yes? And so, um, and so they have a soul as well. But you've never seen a group of um, squirrel or a herd of deer or a flock of birds get together and have a worship service. They don't, my, my dog Shiloh doesn't care where she came from. No, at least that I know of. And nor does she care where she's going when she dies. All she cares about is, do I have food in the bowl? Is there water? Am I going to pet her? Can she sit at the feet of Alpha? And every once in a while, lick, lick somebody in the house to get extra salt. I don't know why. Anyways, so, and then go outside, right? That's all she cares about. But humans are not animals. We are distinctly different from the world in that. We have to change the way we think. You are not a product of evolution. You have a body, you eat, you drink, you breathe. You have a soul. It may seem like some people don't have a soul, but they do have a soul, okay? And that they think, okay? They have personality, okay? But everywhere around the world, people what? Worship. That's exactly right. They want to worship something, even if it's themselves. You get it? They care about the afterlife. My dog doesn't care about the afterlife. Humans everywhere around the world care about the afterlife. They wonder what's there, even if they say there's nothing there. It's because they're thinking about it. The book, Ecclesiastes, it says that God has put olam in our hearts. Gerard, do you know the word olam? Good. Okay, literally it means um, that which is just beyond horizon. The word odd is the word eternity. Aviad is eternity from that perspective, everlasting. But, but literally the word olam has this kind of nuance in it, and it's that which is just beyond horizon. When do you ever get there? Do you ever wonder what's just beyond the horizon? And you go in the providence of the horizon, what? Can, can you, it, so it's the concept of perpetuality. Does that make sense? It's go, and God has placed that in our hearts, not just believers, but everyone's heart. Everyone has the idea, has the knowledge that they're going to live and that there's something beyond this world. That's kind of cool, isn't it? That's the spiritual realm. So we have the body. We have the soul, the psyche, psychiatry, psychiatry, okay? And we have the soul, or the spirit, I'm sorry, the spirituality, okay? So, sarkos is the Greek word, psychotic. Psychotic, or psychiatric, okay, is the, the Greek word for soul. And then pneumonic, pneumatic, so like medical, okay, is the word for the spirit, okay? Because it's the word for breath and wind and air and spirit, okay? So, so we have each of these parts. And so we've seen Jesus, in a sense, dealing with the fleshly part. Okay? But it's that immaterial side, if you would, the soul and the spirit, that last week we began to see him interplay. And the way I say it this way, because we're three parts, but it's going to sound like two parts now, because we're going to talk about the, the material and the immaterial, but I believe what we look at as the immaterial has two parts to it, Okay? Because last week, as we saw Jesus go in to talk to the demoniac, again, from the world's perspective, and I'll throw the picture up there, because he, he, he was going that way, right? And it reminds us where he was heading. When he goes there, okay, what do we find? We find a man who is what? Fierce. Okay? Such that people were afraid to pass that way. He's breaking bonds. He's, he's, he's got, from the, from the perspective of man, he's got a personality disorder. Okay? He's crying at night and he's cutting himself. He's a cutter. Okay? And so we would, psych, uh, from the psychiatry side, we would look at this as a personality disorder, but we know that wasn't the issue. And we know that based on good authority because Jesus did what? 
He cast demons out, okay? And it wasn't just one, it was multiple. In fact, the one guy, we're told, uh, refers to the fact that he had a legion in him. He had thousands of angels, or angels, whew. Demons are false angels, just so you know. They're fallen angels, so. Um, but he had thousands of demons in him, and so they asked to be cast into the swine. Jesus gives permission, right? And so immediately they, they, they run headlong. The swine run headlong, because now they're full of the demons. So if you wonder whether animals can be demon-possessed, if you would, or oppressed, clearly the answer is what? Yes. How do we know? Because God's word declares it. He cast them out of the, the man, and they went into the what? The pigs, and the pigs did what? They ran down into the cliff. Don't ask me how all that plays together. It's not for me to, to, to wonder, okay? I'm just telling you what the Bible declared, okay? So they went into the pigs, and the pigs immediately ran into the, the, the Sea of Galilee to the destruction. Okay? Where those demons go from there, I don't know. Okay? So, but the point is that we see all this thing play out. And we saw the people then in the area when they saw the change, the transformation that had come over this man. They couldn't deny that it happened. And yet when they looked at it, they said, What? You need to get out. Jesus, to Jesus, you need to get out. Not because of what he did for the man, but because of what it cost them. And so we ended last week with the discussion, what's, what's the worth of a soul to you? If you lost your life savings in order for somebody to get saved, one person, is it worth it? Is it worth it? And we can say nod and say, yes, it is. But you know when it comes to really come to play? When somebody comes to you and they, they, need, they need help. John says in his epistle, he says, you know, if, if you have the wherewithal to help somebody and you don't help them, how can you say you love them? And if you can't love those who you can see, how can you ever say you love the one that you can't see? That's why it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. And so there's this loving then in, in, in the body, the soul, and the spirit. And so Jesus came and, and he showed us that this guy who potentially was psychotic or, or um, on, uh, addicted to, to different, you know, LSD trip type thing, it really wasn't that at all, but rather he had a demonic problem. And Jesus cures the demonic problem, okay? So after this, Jesus goes back to Capernaum. We're told in the very beginning he went back to his own city. Now, is it his own city? I want you to think about this. It's kind of fun. Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. Where did he grow up? Nazareth. But now we're told that he's, he has an adopted city, and that city is Chafernehem, okay? Capernaum, okay? And so this is where he is centering and setting up his ministry. This is going to become his hometown. Does that make sense? And so, so even God is transplanted, if you would. You know, it's not his birthplace. That was Bethlehem. It's not the place that he grew up. That was Nazareth. But now his ministry center is going to be someplace totally different in, in Capernaum. Okay? And so we're in Capernaum. And what we see first, as Chuck read a little bit ago, is we have this situation with the paralytic. Now, I want to build a situation here, though. He comes back to um, the city. And where do you think he goes? So... Verse 1, so he got into a boat, crossed over, came to his own city. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic. Da -da 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 -da. Okay, so we have a little bit that is missing here from the story. So let's turn over to Mark chapter 2. Okay, we're going to be looking at Mark 2 um, at different points through here to get some more of the um, um, context. Thank you, yes. Beginning of verse 1, it says, And again he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was what? In the house. Not in a house, but in the house. Again, I don't want to make a big deal over things, but this is a specific house. It's not just a general house. He's in the house. So what the house is he in? No, not at this moment. That's, that's good, because you would think that it potentially could be if it was the house of God, there was a synagogue, but that's always referred to as that. Peter's house. Yeah. Peter's house. That's where, remember, that's where he went to immediately after the, um, before he went to this side, he healed Peter's mother-in-law. That's exactly right. So, what an honor for Peter, huh? That, that his house, and so I want you to think about this though, in a moment, that honor. What an honor it is, right? Because they go to Peter's house, potentially Peter's house, it's not like he's got this mansion, he's a what? 
He's a fisherman. So do you think he's got a big mansion? No, he's probably got a small little hovel of a house, okay, from our perspective, okay. Um, so he's, he's got this house, and all of a sudden people start coming to him because Jesus is going to what? Teach. Jesus is in town. Everybody wants to see him. Everybody wants to hear what he's going to teach, and everybody wants what? To be healed. <laughs> exactly right, okay. The, 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 the healing service, in a sense. That's exactly right, okay. So they, they've got this thing coming. So, so the, the house, okay, so I don't know about your house, but I'm picturing my house, okay, Okay? And I'm picturing my house with 100, 200 people in it. My wife's looking at me. They're busting out the walls between the bedrooms. Make sense? Because people want to be there. They're, I mean, there's no wall now between the, the, the living room and the dining room. I mean, people are just you know, crowding in, crowding in. It, it can't, I mean, the, the fire marshal can't even get in to tell me that the people have got to get out. You, you know what I'm saying? And so they're, they're busting in, and they can't get in anymore. They're standing at the dining room windows. They're standing at the, they busted out the, the, the big window in the living room, praise God. And um, so now i got to put something else in there. Anyways, but... They're, they're, they're all trying to hear whatever, right? Nobody else can get in. But these... This is a story about the paralytic. This isn't a story about the paralytic. It really is a story about what? Faith of his friends. The faith of his friends. That's exactly right. These four guys hear that Jesus is in town. I don't know where they're living at. I don't know if they're on the outskirts. I don't know if they're in the country. But they hear Jesus is back. They heard, undoubtedly, they heard that the, the servant of the centurion had been healed. What was wrong? Remember, I told you this a couple weeks ago to remember this. What was wrong with the servant of the centurion? Go back. Chapter 8, beginning of chapter 8. What was wrong with him? He was paralyzed. He was paralyzed. That's exactly right. And from a distance, Jesus did what? He healed him. He healed him of what? Paralysis, with his words, but the servant of his paralysis. Make sense? So he, remember I told you, remember this, this is very key. He heals him. The guy had paralysis, Jesus healed him. So the four friends, they hear Jesus is back, their friend is what? Paralyzed. It's the exact same Greek word, paralytic, okay? So they, they grab their friends who are paralytic, and they put him on a stretcher. Makeshift, I'm sure. It's not like they had stretchers just kind of laying around. They put something together. They threw their buddy on it. And they're carrying him to Jesus. Could you imagine what it felt like? You're the friend. When you get to Peter's house, because you've got to ask questions. Where's he at? Where's he at? You're going to find out he's at the, at the fisherman's house, right? You get to the fisherman's house and what? There's a crowd around the house. You can't even get to the house, not alone in the house. And you're sitting there trying to figure out, man, what am I going to do? We've got to get him in there. Excuse me, excuse me. we got a, we got a, we got a guy that needs it. Hey, buddy, so do we. We were here first. You know, I mean, could you imagine all this going on, jostling going on? Because everybody is in a great spiritual frame of reference at this moment, aren't they? Why do you think they were there? They're all looking for the handout. Nothing personal, but you get it, right? The healer's in town, and they all want a what? A healing. Okay? Now, hopefully some are there to hear, but we know that we're going to find out in a moment that many of the scribes and the Pharisees and, and those guys are there. They're not there to, to get in wisdom. They're there to find something in Jesus that they could claim to be wrong. I mean, isn't it nice that it almost sounds like church today, doesn't it? You know? And so, not ours, of course, you know, but there's other churches. And so, but, you know, people are always going for themselves rather than for, for God and to hear the true message. Well, these guys get there, and, and, and they're just like beside themselves, and they're trying to figure out, what are we going to do? So they go to the roof, and they start pulling off the shingles, and they're pulling off this, the, 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 the plywood. I know they don't have all that back then, but put it in an art today, right? That, so they look at it, and they go, the only way we're getting in is what? Through the roof. Okay? We've got to play Santa Claus. We can't fit down the chimney. Okay? So they start tearing apart the roof. Now, there's debate on what kind of roofs they had back then. Some think it was uh, uh, thatch. Okay? But in that area, there's a lot of basalt. And so basalt is a heavy rock. And they would cut them out into slabs, and they would use those as well as, um, as covers for the top. So whichever way you want to look at it, okay? Either it was more that they had the dirt and the, and the thatch and the sod roof, okay? That they had to dig down through. Or it was that they actually had basalt tiles that they had to pick up and carry off, which were heavy, okay? Either way, it required what? Effort. Work. They, they, had, to, they, they, they had to think of the plan, 
okay, to get up on top of that roof. Not to get up, they probably had steps going up along it. But they were to think of a plan that we're going to do this. And then they had to go up there and they had to do it. And the hole had to be what? Big enough to lower the stretcher through. How did they lower the stretcher through? Did they do it with their hands? Did they lower like this? Probably not. They had to lower it on what? Rope, which meant that what? They needed to have rope. I don't know whether they brought rope with them. They might have had to go find somebody who had rope and then come back. This is a process. Sometimes we read something in one verse, two verse, and we forget to think about everything that's going on in the middle of this thing. The faith of, their fr- of his friends, of the paralytic's friends, are massive. Look at what this reads in Mark 2 as we continue. And they came bringing to him, that is Jesus, the paralytic, carried by four men. When they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they laid down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, not the faith of the young man. The young man wasn't necessarily over someplace saying, Jesus is in Capernaum. I need four guys. Please help me. Four guys, please get me there. Rather, it was the four friends who were determined to get him there. When Jesus saw their faith to the paralytic, he said, Son, your sins are forgiven. We'll get there in a moment, okay? But what I want to point out right now is that kid could never have been in that spot if what? If those guys didn't get him there. What kind of a friend are you? What kind of a friend am I? What burden am I willing to go through to bring my friend to Jesus? My neighbor. I don't know what those guys had planned. I don't know if they had to take time off of work. I don't know if they were taking time away from their family. There was a commitment involved in those four friends. And they had a bond together, four of them, to get that guy to Jesus. Now, could Jesus heal him from a distance? Yes. What they understood, what they didn't understand, it doesn't matter. They may have been a little faith, but they had what? They had faith. The size of a mustard seed. And they can move mountains. And guess what? They did. They did. Could you imagine if this church bonded together in faith and we were willing to sacrifice time with our family? We were willing to sacrifice time with business. We were willing to sacrifice time from NASCAR and from NCAA and from NFL. I know I'm picking on toes here. I'm picking on my own, so I'm only picking on my own toes. You can pick on your own. You step on your own. Why do we want to say that? What if, what if, what if we were willing to bring this neighborhood to Jesus? If we were willing to go and carry people to him? The guy couldn't get there on his own. How many seek God? No, not one. You know the scriptures. I'm just asking you to quote scripture, right? How, how many can attain to the glory of God on their own? None. So what does Romans 10 tell us? But that if people believe in their hearts, that they're going to be what? They're going to be saved, right? If they confess in their heart, they can, or believe in their heart, they confess with their mouth, they shall be saved. What does it say right after that? What does it say in Romans 10 right after the fact that they, if, they, if they believe if, then, and, and they confess it, they'll be saved? How shall they what? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Keep going, David. And how shall he preach? That's okay. And how shall he preach unless he's what? He's sent. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. So faith comes by Hearing and hearing by word of God. You know, it's interesting, there are two words for word in, in, in the Greek. There's the word logos. You're familiar with logos. In the beginning was the logos. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. That's logos. That's not the word that's used here. That's not, that's not faith comes by hearing and hearing by the logos of God. It's faith comes by hearing and hearing by the rhema of God. That's the spoken oral. That's you going out and proclaiming the message of God to people. That's because you're the preacher. I'm not the preacher. I'm a teacher. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the what? The gospel, right? To every creature, right? And so we're supposed to go out and we're supposed to preach the gospel. We're supposed to sow the seeds. 
And faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. It's my job to go out and to bring people to Jesus. I don't want to camp on that. But remember, Jesus said to, his, to, to Peter and uh, Andrew and James and John, follow me and what? I'll make you fishers of men. He's teaching them. He's teaching them. This is, in order to catch fish, you've got to what? You've got to go fishing. You've got to go fishing. So the faith of the friends. Secondly, the forgiveness of the men. His diagnosis. Now, this is a big deal to me. Okay? Again, as we talked about the, the personality disorder, okay? and so again, not make a big deal, but I got to teach this. I taught this just like this is um, to the, um, the psychiatric department. That's not the right term. At the Uptown VA. Uh, mental health department at the Uptown VA. I got to teach on mental, scriptures and mental health. Okay? And I brought, last week, the demoniac to them as well, and I brought this paralytic to them. Because what happens here at this moment is very critical. Okay? We already have Jesus healing, healing a paralytic. Make sense? What happens right here is massive, okay? So in today's realm, there is what we call the conversion disorder. It's in the DSM-5, okay? And so this is a quote from the, um, the psychiatric or mental health um, Bible, if you would, okay? It's called a conversion disorder, a part of the dissociative disorder, okay? It's a mental health condition in which a person has blindness, paralysis, or other nervous system, neurological symptoms that cannot be explained by a medical evaluation. Frequently, it is coupled with depression, guilt, and or anxiety. So there is what is called a conversion disorder today. There are people who can be paralyzed not from having a physical illness, but rather it's from guilt. That's because we don't believe in the world in a what? Spirit. So man is only an evolved animal, so he has a body and he has a soul, and so therefore we have to explain everything based upon this psyche, psychiatry, of an individual. And so this is their explanation of this, called conversion disorder. Now, am I denying this is true? No, I'm not denying this is true, and this is exactly what this guy has in the Bible that we're, that we're reading about today. 2,000 years before they're, they're qualif or qualifying all these things, we read about a conversion disorder in the Bible. It's right here. Note what Jesus does. First, let's say what he doesn't do. Jesus doesn't go up to him and touch him and heal him. Do you, do you note that? He doesn't touch his eyes and heal his blindness. He doesn't touch his ears and heal his deafness. He doesn't touch his legs to heal his paralysis, his lameness. Rather, Jesus says to him, what? It's all about sin, my son. Take heart. Your sins are what? Forgiven. Jesus delivers him. He doesn't heal him. He delivers him. This is a big deal. Again, as I mentioned last week, I believe that there are psychiatric problems that our soul can break. Okay? So I'm not getting rid of that part. Just as we have to heal physical issues, so there are social or soulful issues that need to be dealt with. I'm not saying that that doesn't... But I think that there are a whole lot of spiritual issues that the world isn't dealing with, and they're not dealing with them properly, because they're not psychiatric problems, and they're not physical problems, they're actually spiritual problems. An individual has sin. So, again, I mentioned this before, but let's start with the physical side, okay? If I take um, a 24-hour antihistamine, like Loratadine or Claritin or whatever, I become very angry. I used to say I become like Jeffrey Dahmer. I'm not going to say that, but I do. I want to tear people's heads off. I mean, I almost broke my laptop. It's just nuts how within a day I can become just Jekyll and Hyde. I mean, I just can't, I can't take them. It doesn't matter whether it's um, Zyrtec or whether it's Allegra or whatever. I take any of those things, and I literally want to kill somebody. And so... Um, so, that's a physical issue. I'm putting a chemical on my body that's having a chemical effect on my body. So, whether you, what you understand about drugs or not, again, pharmakia is the Greek word for witchcraft, okay? So, I'm not saying that's a witchcraft kind of moment. I'm just telling you that in my body, that chemical substance does something weird, okay? So, but now all of a sudden, that physical thing going on becomes a what? It becomes a psychiatric and soulful problem, doesn't it? Because I become very what? Angry. And I'm not very pleasant to be around, am I? 
Yeah, no, she, she didn't want to say it, but that's true. I mean, I am. I mean, one time I was broke my laptop, and I just smashed it down in my leg. I mean, I was just like, I can't take this one either, you know. And I knew what was going on, you know. And I told my boys, and so the twins were still at home, and they were playing baseball. I said, Let's go to practice, and, you know. And they're like, So <laughs> they'll get in the car, and you know, and I'm there, you know, and probably praying that I don't get into road rage on the way, you know. Anyways, so. I mean, I was angry. I was angry. The Bible says, be angry and what? Oh, that's the spiritual side. You get it? So it goes from a physical, from me putting a chemical in my body, to becoming a psychiatric issue, okay? A soul issue. But now, all of a sudden, i got to fight with what? Whether it becomes a sin issue. I would love to tell you it never became a sin issue for me. I'd also love to tell you it was only when I'm dealing with that, that issue that I only have struggled with sin. So get rid of them. And this means I never sin again. All it did was do what? Kind of bring out what was what? Oh, stop it! You're saying I'm an angry young man? No, you're saying you're an angry old man. Okay, so good. <laughs> and so, yeah, I was talking to Matt this week, and he said, yeah, Daddy says, you know, I, I you know, you told me all the time when you were, you know, younger how much anger you dealt with, you know. When we're, we're younger, you know, even older we deal with anger, but when we're younger we have those issues. We get to admit sin is what? Sin. And so it's like alcoholism. And unless, until you admit you're an alcoholic, you'll never get over alcoholism. Until you admit you're a sinner, you'll never deal with sin. Okay? So, so anyways, so we have this issue. So, from the world's perspective, it's a conversion disorder. It's a psychiatric problem. From Jesus' perspective, it's a sin problem. And he heals him by forgiving him. Because when he says, my son, take heart, be of good courage, your sins are forgiven you. What immediately happens? Then he says, don't what? Take up your bed and walk. And the guy does what? He takes up his bed and walk. If Jesus was going to heal him like he did the, the, the centurion servant, he would have said, he's healed. Make sense? But he specifically says, you're forgiven. Now, this causes a problem with the reaction of the crowd. First, we have the scribes who we're told about, right? The scribes are indignant. They're beyond themselves. This man, what? He blasphemed. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, you've got to understand, what they just said was true. What they just said was true. They are indignant at Jesus, and they have a good right to be indignant. Because no man has the right to claim the authority to what? To forgive sins. Because only God can forgive sins, and they have that under authority. And I have just two of the verses up here from my favorite portion of Scripture, Isaiah 40 to 48. Okay, And so, again, there's so much in Isaiah 40 to 48 that Yahweh declares about himself, that is revealed about Jesus, that, again, if, if Jesus isn't Yahweh, I'm getting rid of the whole Bible. Okay? I'm a creationist because I can't deny that anymore. But if Jesus isn't Yahweh, if he's not the true God, I don't know what I'm going to believe. Okay? But look at Isaiah 43, verse 25. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own namesake. Who was talking? Yahweh was talking. Yahweh declares. He's the one. It wasn't Isaiah saying that. Okay? It's Yahweh declaring that. And I will not remember your sins. 44, 22. I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions and like a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. This is Yahweh speaking. Yahweh in Isaiah 43, verse 10 and 11 says, You are my witnesses, saith Yahweh, that I am God, that before me there was no God, neither shall there ever be after me, and I alone am the Savior. Yahweh. Yahweh's declared. He is it. He's the only one. And so when Jesus, you got to understand, when Jesus at this very moment declares this guy that his sins are absolved, listen, you don't have the power this, this absolution of sins. You know, I grew up in a church where the, the, the pastor absolved me of my sins every week. He had no authority to absolve me of my sins. There's one mediator between God and men. Who is it? Christ Jesus. That's exactly right. I don't have, you, you are not the mediator for somebody else. Now, I understand Jesus said to the disciples, to whose sin you forgive, they will what? Be forgiven to the sins you retain, they shall be what? Retained. I get that. Okay? But he's talking against yourself. Not for you to turn around and forgive somebody else's sins. But Jesus did, didn't he? And the Pharisees and the scribes, 
knew what was going on. And they were forced. They had a decision to make at this very moment. Talking about crisis of faith. Right? I mean, here they are. Everybody else is seeing what? A miracle. And they're just kind of blowing off the fact that Jesus said what? Your sins are forgiven you. They're seeing the whole thing. But the theologians in the crowd, the ones who were there to find a stumbling point, found one. But it wasn't against Jesus. It was against themselves. Do you get it? Because now they have a decision to make. Who is Jesus? And so I ask you, who is Jesus? Now I know you're here, and so you believe Jesus is God, okay? But do you really? Is he the God that can take your sins and put them as far as east is from the west? The Olam concept again. They're gone. They're gone. And yet we retain them, like this paralytic did. But Jesus took the sin of this the, the, the sin of this paralytic and he cast it beyond Olam. And he said, My son, take heart. Your sins, they're forgiven. Now we come to the faith of the paralytic. We had the faith of the friends, right? But now the paralytic has to make a decision, doesn't he? Is he going to stand up or not? So he stands up. He takes up his bed and he walks. But now we got faith coming on, on the crowd. What's the crowd going to do? Well, the scribes, they don't like it at all. Jesus in Matthew 9 says... Why do you think it evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and take, rise and walk, but that you may know, that you may know. Remember we talked about when we get to the book of Ezekiel in a couple of weeks. We're going to find out that that's the catchphrase of Ezekiel, that you may know that I am Yahweh. Okay? Jesus uses that phrase many times. Arise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed, Go to your house. And that's when the paralytic, what? Proved that Jesus had the authority and the power that he claimed. Could you imagine what would happen if the paralytic didn't rise up? Jesus would have been stoned, or they would have wanted him to. Right, okay? As a false prophet. But Jesus knew not only the faith of his friends, but he knew the faith of the young man, and he knew in detail probably what was going on in that young man's life. I can't imagine what was going on in that guy's head as he sat there and he listened to Jesus. I'm sure there was a whole lot more conversation going on in his head. God dealing with the sin that was in him. Bringing it all out. And Jesus saying, you're forgiven. Take up your bed and walk. Well, the crowd, they were beyond themselves with marvel. And they glorified God, which is a reminder to me of what Jesus said in the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. That let your light so shine, right? That you'd be like a city that is set upon a hill whose light cannot be hid, and people will observe your good works in what? They will glorify your Father, which is in heaven. And so they glorified God. They saw what Jesus did, and Jesus had been continually pointing it back to the Father, and so the people glorified God. And again, it's just a small little thing, but I ask myself, how often do I continue to make sure that I'm pointing it back to God, or do I allow the praise to come to me? It's not about me. If it's a good message, it wasn't from me. I promise you. If, if something happened in the middle of it, that's because I got in the way. If we want to see something happen in this neighborhood, it's God who's going to do the work. God's going to do the work. He's going to use us. But God's going to do the work. If we think that we can do it, hang it up. That's why we've got to be a, a, a church that is focused on Him, who want what He wants for us to do. Secondly, we have the next, the publican here, real quick, as we go through this man here, the publican, and so this is a guy walking in through the gate, okay? Jesus comes to this guy named Matthew, okay, who is a tax collector, otherwise known as a publican, okay? And He says to Matthew, a command, follow me. Does that command sound familiar? It's exactly the same thing he told Peter and Andrew and James and John. Follow me. There's no caveats here, though. There's no promise. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He merely says to Matthew, who is also called Levi, we'll see this in a moment, um, and elsewhere, he says to him, what? Follow me. Now again, 
you've got to stop and think through what's happening here, okay? First of all, we have this location, okay? We're in Capernaum, and the thing you need to understand about Capernaum is it sat right along the Via Maris, okay? You say, oh, what's the Via Maris? Well, there were major Roman roads that people would travel. It wasn't the, the, the interstate highway system like we have today. You just walked wherever you wanted, there's all these streets and everything, and you just go wherever. There were specific main roads, okay? And so you had the King's Highway that comes down as well, and what was called the Via Maris that would go head up toward the uh, Asia Minor, okay? And so Capernaum, so you can see the mountains that are here, and so in order to, to come into this area, into um, Palestine, you either came along the coast through Tyre, or you came along through the, the Rift Valley here, and you came through Capernaum, okay? It's just the way you go. So you're going to take a trip to, to Canada. You just go across wherever you want to go across, right? It doesn't happen that way. There are certain points of entry. Okay? What happens when you get to those points of entry? You have to write the identification. Good. And that does apply back then as well. But you're going to pay customs on anything you got. Okay? Now, back then, it was like a toll booth. Okay? So think Pennsylvania here, you know? Okay? And you can picture whatever state you want as well. Okay? You got the toll booth sitting there. It's a customs booth. This is a, it was, it was the booth of taxes. Okay? And so, so here we are. This is where we're at. Okay? Up in Capernaum. Okay? Along the Via Maris. And we have the person who is Levi Matthew. Now, again, as we know from Peter, Peter's real name was what? Simon. Shimon. And so, to the, to the Jewish people around Asia Minor and into Greece, what did they call Peter? Cephas. That's right, because that was the Hebrew name of Peter, okay? So they would have a name and a surname, okay? And so clearly everybody understood Matthew, who we're going to refer to as Matthew the rest of this time, as Levi, the son of Alphaeus, okay? So if you read Mark and Luke and all the guys, you read about Levi, the son of Alphaeus. But Matthew chooses to reveal himself as who? Matthew. Make sense? Okay. Matan. And so, so he becomes Matthew, okay? And so that's the guy that's here, okay? This is the guy we're talking about. Who is he? He's a publican, not a Republican. That means we tax over and over again, right? Republicans tax more and more. Anyways, anyways I'm, I'm getting politics. Anyways, I'm going to let that one go. Um, but anyways, so, so he's, a, he's a tax collector. He's a, he's a collector of the customs, right? And so he's sitting there. So, so what do you think that looks like? Okay, so I just, I just want you to just kind of picture, I only have a slight picture from the Jesus movie here, okay, it's a still frame, okay, him, and you see Jesus in the background there, and the Roman soldier walking through, kind of guarding the place, okay, and so, what do you think his little booth looks like? It's got a lot of money. Is that you, Deb? No, Phil's? Yeah, a lot of money. A lot of money, okay? How do you know he's got a lot of money? Because that's what he's taking. They didn't have credit cards back then. He didn't have a whole lot of slips. He didn't have a square account. Yeah, he wasn't just kind of going through his cell phone and kind of this. They were giving him coinage. If they didn't have the money, they what? They didn't come through. It's pretty simple. Okay? And so you went through, you paid the what? Money. Now, what else do we know about him as a tax collector? He took whatever he could get. That's exactly right. He had a base sum that he had to give to the, to the Roman authorities. Anything that was above that was his. That's how he made his living. That's how he made his profit. Whatever he could extort off of people coming through. And so if, if he told them, you know, three gold pieces, and they were willing to give him three gold pieces, even if there was only one silver piece to come through, if he told them three gold pieces, and they gave him three gold pieces, well, that's great, because he can convert the change, you know, kind of do the, the old city thing of conversion from shekels to dollars and dollars to shekels, and say, oh, man, I made, made an extra shekel on this one. You know, whatever. So the idea, that's what he's doing, okay? And so he's got a lot of money there. This is really key, because remember Jesus' command is what? Follow me. Okay? So we have this person. We have his response. What's his response? He left it all. This is really important. He left the table. Again, I said this last week, how irresponsible. What's at the table? The money! What do you think happens when he walks away from the table? The money disappears. <laughs> And the people go through for free. I think somebody probably assumes his position pretty quickly. <laughs> I can't say that for a fact. It's not in the Bible. But 
I'm pretty sure that when he followed, he didn't what? He, he didn't give a notice. He didn't turn back. He had a decision to make, just like the scribes and the Pharisees had a decision to make. Just like the paralytic had a decision to make. Just like the four friends had a decision to make. His decision was different than their decisions. But he still had a decision to make, didn't he? Jesus said what? Just like he told the rich young ruler, but he didn't state it this way. Jesus told the rich young ruler what? Take everything you have and what? Give it away. Sell it. Give it away to the poor, and then come follow me. He didn't tell this to this guy, because it really wasn't his to give away anyway. Right? He just told him to what? Walk away from it. I want you to walk away from everything you know. I want you to walk away from your livelihood and follow me. It's a call to ministry. How many of you are willing to walk away from your livelihood to follow Jesus? Now, I don't say this to be prideful. I really don't. I had that decision to make years ago when I was in the military. And I knew I had a potentially high double to low triple digit job that would be waiting for me. At that time, that was a lot of money. Because I worked in my field. And the company that supplied the computers and stuff like that for me would have hired me in a heartbeat. And there were people who told me, just work it for a couple years and only live on half of it and save half of it. Imagine what you could do for God then. But I knew at that moment, if I didn't leave it all, I would never follow him. Because the money would become too good. And you begin to live to your level of greed. And it's hard to walk away from it. So I'm not putting myself on a pedestal. I praise God for what he's done for me. And I can tell you from my own life over the next 10, 30 years, the blessings that I've seen from God, it has not been a sacrifice. It's never a sacrifice. People are going, oh, the sacrifice you made. I didn't make a sacrifice. That's what people don't get. I didn't make a sacrifice. I have gained so much more than I would have ever had. You just have to think from a spiritual perspective rather than the physical perspective. If you're looking from the earthly thing, no, I don't have a mansion. But i got a God that I know better than I ever would have known before. I have seen Him provide for me and my family in ways that I would have never been able to see Him provide. It's been so exciting for me to watch Him and then have Him take me the next step when I resigned from the previous church and I had nothing, no job, no nothing. And to have Him work out a, a business for me is beyond my, my comprehension. But I would never have been able to see any of that if I wasn't willing to get up from the table and leave it. If you would. And again, this isn't about me. Think Matthew. Think about what he would have missed if he sat at the table. If he said, well, you know, i got a wife and i got kids. I don't know what he had. If he said, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to be in trouble if I leave all this money sitting here because the Roman government's going to what? They're going to come after me. They're going to think I stole it all. He had to believe that Jesus was able to protect him. That Jesus was going to be able to deliver him. That Jesus was going to do all these things. He got up and left it all. And what did he do? Jesus said, oh, I forgot to throw this in. Luke 14, So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. I didn't say it. Jesus did. If you're not willing to put it all on the line, you're really not his disciple. I want you to struggle with that. I want you to chew on it. If you're not willing to leave it all, I'm not saying you have to leave it, but if you're not willing to leave it all, if it's not even there, you're not a disciple. You may be a convert, you may be a believer, but you're not a true disciple. There is a difference. From this point, Matthew, Levi, the next thing he does is amazing to me. He throws a party. He throws a party for all his unsaved friends. All the publicans and the sinners. And he get, invites one special guest. Now there's some other special guests, but there's one important special guest. It's Jesus. He brings Jesus into the conversation. Can you imagine that? He invites Jesus to come right into the middle of that party. And Jesus went with him. That's even more amazing. We're not allowed to have unsaved friends. Paul said, look, if you're not here to reach the unsaved, then why are you here? 
I told you to separate from those who are adulterers and stuff, but I meant believers. From those who say they're believers and they're, they're living like the world, those are the guys to separate from. But the ones who are in the world, no, that's not to separate yourself from them. That's why you're in the world. You're in the world to bring them to Jesus. And you can't bring them to Jesus if you're not willing to go hang out with them for a moment. Well, as long as you make a, a pretty fish tank, they're going to want to come in. Jesus said, go be fishermen. Go to the lake and catch them. Then you can bring them on your table. Not so we're going to eat them, but you get what I'm saying. So Matthew did what was very logical. His life had been changed. And now he wants his friends to know. And he wants them to know the one who was his transformer, if you would. Who was the one who changed his life. His deliverer. Oh, the scribes and the Pharisees. Whew, they didn't like that one so much, did they? They're asking the disciples, why? Why? Did, if he's supposed to be Messiah, if he's supposed to be the Son of God, if he's God, why is he hanging out with these sinners and these publicans? Because they're unclean, is the idea. Read between the lines. This is, again, Jewish concept here, okay? And God, sin can't be found in his what? Presence, because he's what? Holy, holy, holy. I mean, Isaiah knew, maybe he got in God's presence, and he realized where he was, and he said, woe is me, for I am what? Unclean. If Isaiah was unclean, could you imagine the common man? I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst people of unclean lips, and God did what for him? He sent an angel to grab a tongue, put it on his tongue, and said, now you're cleansed. But Jesus, God in the flesh, went in the midst of them all, because his heart was for the people. God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's God's desire for all men. Is it my desire? Is it your desire? That's what Jesus did. Jesus went, and so they said, um, why is he there? Well, Jesus comes back and shows him the call, and I want to read it, because I love this. Jesus comes and he says to him, he says, those, verse 12, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. When's the last time you went to the doctor? Because you're feeling pretty good. I just want to pay you. Now, the guy that we go to, we pay on a monthly basis. It's kind of like paying a lawyer or retainer. And so we can go as often as we want. We can call him as often as we want. We can do whatever we want. But we pay him on a monthly basis. Okay? So, but I still, even though I'm, I'm, I pay him every month, I think I've seen him once in the last two years. He makes a lot of money off me. Okay? But if I wanted to go see him, I could go see him. But I'm not going to go hang out with the doctor just because I want to go hang out with the doctor. Does that make sense? I'm only going to go when I'm what? Sick. Or I think that I'm Sick. I believe that I am sick. Does it make sense? There has to be some belief in me that I'm sick. I mean, there are times that I cough. There are times that I, 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 I have congestion or whatever. And I believe it's just allergies. And I'm just going to get over it. There's no reason for me to go see the, the doctor. You know, or this or that. Or I just have gas or, or whatever. So therefore, I'm not going to go see the doctor because this is just going to pass. I'm not going to go spend my time there. I have to believe I'm really, what? Sick. I really have a, what? Need. Does it make sense? Do you know what people need to do before they'll ever come to Jesus? They have to see that they have a need. They have to know that they're sick. They have to know that they are dying. Wages of sin is Death. They're going to know they're sinners. And they've got to know that it's fatal. That one day they're going to die. And this is not just a, a, a momentary fatalness. This is an eternal fatalness. And sometimes as believers, I think we play the game too. And we forget about eternity. And we play a game with God. And I get so tired of hearing people say, as long as I get to heaven, I'm okay. That's not the proper perspective. It's not a matter of as long as I get to slide in the door. I want to glorify God with my life. With all that I am. Do you want your friends to know Jesus? Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners... To what? So I word again, to repentance. I came to call sinners to do what? Change the way they think. Change the way they think. 
Because they're righteous. And he's talking about the self-righteous here. The ones who believe that they're righteous. There's no reason for them to what? Change the way they think. Or so they think. But when you know you're a sinner, that's what one thing is refreshing about going into a prison to preach. For the most part, you have a 90% population who knows what? They're a sinner. There's still 10% that are living in denial. Okay? But they know who they are. They know why they're there. They're thieves or murderers. It's kind of easy, isn't it? But we kind of sit there and think what? We're not so bad. Yeah. God, God's pretty, pretty glad they got me. And you've got to get to the point where you realize how stinking and rotten sin is to God. Even just a little. Even if you obey the whole law and yet you stumble at one point, you're guilty of, of it all. Of it all. Jesus came to call sinners to change the way they think. To repentance. It doesn't stop once you get saved. So in the end, Jesus has paid for your sin. Have you accepted the gift and allowed the great physician to heal you of your greatest need? I mean, I can sit there and I can assume that you're all saved, but I don't know that. You know, between you and God. If you've never accepted that, I pray that, that today's the day of your salvation. How have you responded to the call of Christ in your life? Are you willing to leave everything? Is there something that you have been sensing that Jesus has been asking you to do, but you haven't been willing to leave the table? God works in each one of us differently. I don't know what he may be calling you to do, what he may be asking you to do. It may be the struggle of willing to leave everything behind. A lot of times that's what God wants you to do. Just put it all out there. Are you willing to leave it all behind? Is there a need to change the way you think and therefore change the way you act? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness to us. You alone are God most high. There is none else. You alone, Lord, are the ones who redeemed us. You are the one who paid for our sins. You are the, alone are the one who can forgive us our sins. And Lord, you have come to seek and to save the lost, to call sinners to repentance. Lord, help us to continually respond in that likeness. Lord, that even beyond calling unto you for salvation, Lord, that we would desire to continue to be conformed to the image of Christ, and we would desire to be continually changed in the way we think, that we would become more and more like you. But, Lord, that we would be as faithful as well to, and bold to go out and to believe that your message is true and that you will make us fishers of men, that we don't have to figure it out on our own. But, Lord, that we would be willing to go out, as Matthew did after he called upon your name as he followed you, to be able to introduce all of his friends and all of his acquaintances to you, knowing that you love them, Lord, and that you're willing to rub shoulders with them because you're willing to change them. Lord, I pray that you would be magnified in each of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn in our hymnals to Jesus I Come. Say again. 400.